0: We started our introduction to the Book of Romans, and um, we're going to continue with it. We didn't get through it all. There's so much that you need to understand about the Book of Romans before you even uh, attempt to get into the Book of Romans that uh, we are just we need to uh, uh, focus on that for a couple of weeks and really get uh, our understanding set. I told you last week that from a Christian standpoint, the Book of Romans, without a doubt, is the most important book in the Bible. And uh, as you saw from last week, I hope that uh, really every other book in the Bible for you and me as a Christian, for what we do or what we don't do is is interpreted in the light of, of the Book of Romans. It's the key for what we have to do. So we've talked about that. And I told you how that the Book of Romans is really the benchmark. It's the measure not only for understanding the Bible, but certainly for ministry. And, uh, you know, I, uh, last week I told you that... Uh, you know, the book of Romans is absolutely essential for you if you're ever going to really be totally effective. Um, I'm not saying you can't do some things for God. I'm not saying that you won't do some things for God. But if you're going to understand who God is and you're going to understand your job as a, as a minister and really get your uh, understanding and your feet down firmly on the Bible, the book of Romans is an absolute necessity. And um, it's the measure by which all things are judged for the church. And you remember last week we began to lay out some background and I I talked first of all about some phrases and some key words and and, uh, then we moved into the five uh, concepts um, that really breaks the book down. And uh, we got through a couple of those and uh, I told you how that the first one, uh, just to kind of recap, it, the first one we talked about how important understanding the placement of the book of Romans is in your Bible. Romans is unlike any other book you're going to ever read in the Bible. And when you try to approach Romans like you do all the other books of the Bible, it's, uh, it's going to be a problem for you because uh, it's simply uh, not written the same way. So I showed you last week how that you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts. Those books are primarily our historical books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John bring you through the first coming of Christ. At the end of each of those books, the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified and then uh, he resurrects at the end of each of those books. And then in the book of Acts, you see uh, basically what the, um, you know, we call the book of Acts, the book of Acts. But the full name for the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And that's very instructive in itself because it shows you what the apostles are doing after uh, the resurrection of Christ. The book of Acts is, a, is another key book in your Bible that at some point uh, we're going to have to get down uh, but it, it, it bridges from the first four historical books uh, to uh, the book of Romans. That's really what it does. And in the book of Acts, you find that the, we've talked about this many, many times on Thursday night, we find a transition going on from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Once we get into the book of Romans, the church then is fully transitioned, and uh, we now uh, have the book that uh, really has all the doctrinal things that, that we need to have as a church we talked about the mission of Paul and Paul has the man of God that God called to be the Apostle of the Gentiles I showed you how that every facet of New Testament Bible Christianity is defined and placed in its proper context within the Book of Romans and you remember I mentioned we talked about the righteousness of God the faith truth of God faith of God the salvation of God the forgiveness of God the gospel of God the power of God the love of God and of course the wrath of God those are the basic concepts by which the New Testament church is built on. And Romans uh, really uh, deals with that. Romans shows you basically, if, if somebody would say to me, <coughs> what, is, what do you think is the one thing Romans does above everything else? If you could just boil it down to the bottom line, what is the one thing that Romans does? And the one thing that Roman do, Romans does is shows you how God thinks about the New Testament church. And that's a that's an incredible concept because your job and my job is to find out and know the mind of God. Romans shows you uh, what God hates. Romans shows you what God loves. Not only that, but the Book of Romans shows you who God hates and who God's love. And uh, it's one of those things where uh, once you really understand the Book of Romans, it's really God's thought process. And the older you get, as the Lord in the the Lord, the more you ought to think through that process. My wife's favorite saying is to me: she says, uh, she'll say, you know, Robert, I've been married to you for over thirty years, and I know how you think, and I know what you're going to say, and she's usually right. And somebody will say to her, "Well, uh, why don't you have Bob do this?" And she'll say, "Oh, oh, "Oh no, he'll never do that." See, and she's right. She's been with me long enough that she knows in most cases, how I react or what I think about whatever I'm thinking about and how I react to it. And you know what? That's the, that's, that's the beauty of being married in a good relationship for a long number of years. The two, when the Bible talks about the two becoming one, that's part of that process. Through the time spent together and all the issues of life you go through, you pretty much know how the other one thinks and what the other, how the other one's going to react to something. I know when I do something that I shouldn't have done that how she's going to react to it. Now, it doesn't stop me from doing it, but, it, but I know that, uh, you know, I better cover my tracks someplace because that's just the process. And the tragedy is that most married couples sometimes don't have that. They never get that. They're married for 20, 30, 40 years, but they never get that kind of relationship. And yet that's the kind of relationship we should have with God. You ought to know how God thinks about every circumstance in life. You ought to know, uh, when you hear something on TV, when you hear something on the radio, and, and and I'll tell you, there's some incredible things going on in the media right now, uh, in, in just in general. And it's absolutely hilarious if you have, I mean, uh, have any kind of knowledge about the Bible. These presidential elections coming up are just a hoot. I mean, it's absolutely, <coughs> it's absolutely uh, an incredible how what's going on out there. And of course, <coughs> you have you know, every, every facet of talk radio. I From time to time, you know, some of you come in and talk to me about you're driving over to my house or you're driving home from work and <clears throat> you hear some religious topic discussed in the Bible, about the Bible on the radio, you know. And um, it, it's a great advantage that when you hear something, you know if it's truly how God feels and truly what God thinks about that whole scenario. The longer you walk with God, the more you should know how He thinks and not only how he thinks, but how he acts. And you ought to take those things and apply them into your own life. And, uh, you, you know, it's, it's just the way it should work. And, of course, that's what Romans does. Romans shows you when it comes to the church and what the church is supposed to believe. And what the church, and, 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 and as it breaks itself down, it, it goes into every aspect, even into your own personal life, and we'll see that here in a little bit. It tells you, how you should, what you should think about it because it shows you what God thinks about it. And you hear me say it all the time. And I'll continue to say it because it's something that needs to be drilled into every one of us. <clears throat> and that is the mark of every Christian is someone who looks at the Bible and looks at life and realizes that the Bible is God's opinion on everything in life. And then you make that opinion your opinion. Well, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the basic foundational things that you and I as the body of Christ are to know, we are to practice, and we are to apply to our lives, that's the book of Romans. If You want to know what God thinks about the church? And my goodness, I mean, all you got to do is turn the TV on in the morning and listen to about five or six guys out there and you know that uh, uh, they haven't got a clue of what's going on. Last night I had my first class in the book of Judges with uh, uh, Jamie's group, and which is my favorite group, by the way, and... Uh, Where's the. Where's, uh, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> we were talking about <clears throat> really understanding the book of Judges from a purely practical standpoint. <clears throat> I told him that the book of Judges was <clears throat> really one of the weirdest books in the Bible. There's so much stuff going on in Judges that absolutely doesn't make any sense. I mean it is the most off-the-wall stuff you've ever seen in your life. And I told them, many people have a problem with judges because they look at that and they say, wow, if that's the way God does things, man, I even had a person tell me one time, he looked and read a story in there and he said, you know what, if that's the way God does things, I don't want anything to do with God. Now, I looked at him and I said, I agree with you. And he said, well, what do you mean you agree with me? You're a preacher. And I said, well, I agree with what you just said. If that's the way God does things, I don't want anything to do with him either. Now, the issue is, God didn't do that, see. The book of Judges is interpreted in the light of the last chapter and the last verse where it simply says that there was no king in Israel and every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. You take that Old Testament story that is true about God's nation, which is true, and then you make the parallels right over to the church and where you and I are at today, and we have the same issue. You know what? There's no king in this world today. There's no final authority in Christianity. There is absolutely nothing that you can bet your soul on as far as the Christianity is today uh, because they have lost the Word of God. And Christians do whatever they want to do. Churches do whatever they want to do, and they have no idea, no concept of the fact that the book of Romans was written to show you specifically how we should operate as the body of Christ. And uh, it's a great book in that aspect. Now, the second thing, and we started this last week, but we never got through it fully, was the breakdown of the book itself. Now, in your Bible, there is a natural breakdown. Bible scholars don't believe this. Most pastors don't believe this. And most Christians don't believe it either because they don't get it, but they get what the guys teach them. But the bottom line is that God just didn't write a book uh, without giving you the order of the book and everything and the structure within that book. And when God wrote the Bible, He's the author of it from beginning to end. And uh, you're going to have to understand and realize that in the Bible itself, there is a natural breakdown. That natural breakdown uh, contains the whole Bible. And then each book of the Bible has a natural breakdown, and then the chapters have a natural breakdown. I call it the skeleton system of the Bible. Your body would not be much good without its skeleton. And inside all the muscle and the bones and the fat and the capillaries and the blood vessels and all of the uh, things in your body, there is a framework called a skeleton. And uh, it, is the, it is the thing that makes, gives your body uh, the mobility, the thing that gives it the stability. And, of course, uh, the Bible's the same way. The skeleton structure of the Bible is what gives it its, its being. And that's what happens when you get into the Bible and you don't see these things and you don't have these things. So we talked about that, that each uh, there's five sections, five sections that the book of Romans is broken down around uh, that you need to get. First one is the historical section. And that'll be chapter one through chapter five. The second will be the doctrinal section and that'll be chapter 6 through chapter 8. The third one will be the prophetic section, and that'll be chapter 9 through chapter 11. The fourth one will be the practical section, and that'll be chapter 12, uh, 13, 14, and 15. And then the fifth section is the last chapter itself, which is his conclusion, which he makes a reference to uh, the body mystery, which we talked about Thursday night. And... uh, it, 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 you break those five the book down in those five sections. Now, when we study the book of Romans, that's how we're going to approach it. I will talk about and keep before you these five sections all the way through our study because that is the key. In other words, when we study the book of Romans, we're going to study five books separately. And we're going to take the first section and we're going to the historical section and we're going to thoroughly understand it. Then we're going to move into the doctrinal section, and we're going to thoroughly understand that. Then we're going to move into the uh, prophetic section, and we're going to thoroughly understand that. Then we're going to come back to the practical section, and we're thoroughly going to understand that. And then we'll get into the conclusion, and we'll tie the whole thing together. Romans is the key because it's the first book after the historical books that bring you up into the New Testament in the early history. You find the first five books brings you through the life of Christ, the crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then you get into the book of Acts. And then Romans is the book that sets the New Testament Christian in a New Testament church on the bedrock of New Testament groundwork or framework, which is the doctrines of the Bible. And uh, within these five divisions, you're going to find basically six changes that takes place. And this is very important that you understand it. And we're going to go through these, and basically, I'm overviewing it now. But we're going to take these apart as we go through. Within these five divisions or these five books within the Book of Romans, you're going to have six changes that God has set in motion with the New Testament Church. The first one, and they're, they're pretty basic, but you need to understand. The first one is we are moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, to find that even a little bit better is we're moving from the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of God. And uh, if you've been around any length of time, you should understand that concept. But basically, we're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The second thing that's taking place is that uh, uh, where he's laying out now that there is a different thought process that the Jew has that the Gentile has. And when he writes the book of Romans, what he wants to do is he wants to show you as the church that you and i are going to have to deal with the different people groups you and i are going to have to deal with gentiles you and i are going to have to deal with jews so he takes time in the book of romans to show you how they think because you don't approach them and deal with them the same way and so he takes that aspect and he shows you the thought process between the jew and the gentile you know even when Paul's writings, there's, some, there's confusion in the early church. I don't know if you are aware how much you get into the New Testament and how much you have of it that you're comfortable with. But you know what? When you, uh, some of the books of the Bible are written uh, to help people deal with some of the issues that have come up because the church has now changed the whole concept of things. In the book of 1 Corinthians... The church at Corinth has some real issues and struggles because they don't understand the complete changeover. In the book of Galatians, they have a, they're, they're having a struggle. And you've got some people now that the church has come into effect and there's some people showing up saying, well, no, no, the church is here, but if you're a New Testament Christian, that doesn't mean the Old Testament's done away with. It simply means that now you take some of the Old Testament, the law, and you take some of the New Testament, the grace, and you make a blend between the two. And that's simply the problem the Galatians were having. And that's why when they wrote the book of Galatians, Paul's dealing with that, and he tells them, You have been fooled. There are some people that are trying to take from you what God has given you. We find that, that uh, there's an issue of understanding and, and the fact that the gospel has went from the Jew to the Gentile. And you find that Peter has a problem with that. Most of the Jews in Jerusalem have a problem with that, and they iron it out in the book of Acts but you're going to find that a lot of things changed and a lot of things happened that, uh, that and a lot of things quit happening that used to happen in the Old Testament. And one of the things Romans does, the book of Romans does, is it puts you and I on solid ground. It puts you and I on a bedrock foundation that we should not be confused about what we should believe. That's what Romans does. It ends the controversy and the confusion that was going on around this particular time. And they were having a problem between the difference of law and grace and how it affects you. Uh, The New Testament doctrine which the church is built after Christ's death is firmly uh, planted here. And then the fifth thing is he talks about how that you and I are to minister to people in the New Testament. Saved and lost. He goes through every aspect of what you and I should be and then how you and I should minister in that concept and then the last thing that he deals with the sixth thing is the fact that the greatest one of the greatest concepts is the fact that God even though he has put away the Old Testament nation of Israel and he has turned his attention to the to the to the Gentiles that God is not finished with the Jew so these are six things that are Are really changed about uh, from how the Old Testament to the New Testament that Paul, in these five divisions in his books, deals with. And as I said, when we come when we come through it, we will come through it in a in a very uh, uh, we will in an exhaustive way. We're gonna we're gonna deal with every aspect about it. There's so much here, and we will try to get it together as we put it all together. Now, the the third thing that we want to look at here is getting the right breakdown of the chapters. The books break down into five sections. The chapters break down. Each one of them deals with a different issue, and these are vitally important. And I'm going to go through these today uh, just so you have them because uh, you need to put them somewhere uh, in the beginning of the book of Romans so you can see how Roman breaks itself down, but we're going to go through them in great detail uh, when we get to it. All right, in chapter 1, in chapter 1, he talks about how Gentiles think. He gives some opening remarks, he makes some statements, and then he begins to talk about the Gentile mindset. Now, the reason he puts the Gentile first is because that's where the book, uh, that's where the church has went to. And the predominant thing that the church is going to deal with, it's a Gentile church. So he wants you and I to understand that we are going to be primarily ministering to Gentiles. And you have to understand, and now just because and and I don't know if we have any any Shemites in here today. So I, I think probably most of us are Gentiles. But let me just say that. Just because you are a Gentile does not mean you understand how a Gentile thinks. That don't get that. You have a you may you most of God's people, most people I've run into in life don't know anything about themselves, let alone you know, the other people they got to work with. But you and I are Gentiles, and we look at things, we deal with things uh, differently than the Jews do. So the first thing that he talks about there is the mindset of the Gentiles. He wants you and I to know and be firmly set that if you're going to try to minister to Gentiles, you better understand how they think, why they do the things that they do, and they do some screwy things. Then chapter 2, he deals with the mindset of the Jew. Because you as the body of Christ need to understand. You as the body of Christ need to understand how God views the Jew today. We are living in a Christian world today that the Jew is very quickly being thrown out the door. We see it around the world. I only know of two nations as we speak today who take the nation of Israel's side in anything. And one is the United States and the other one is England. And both of those nations are fast being overtaken by the Muslim mindset that hates that Jew. And I dare to say if Jesus doesn't come and he tarries his coming in the next 20 years, uh, we'll either be dead or we'll be in a mosque, one of the two. I can't choose for you, but I'll be dead. But that's where it's headed. That's where it's headed. Gaddafi said something a couple of years ago that I thought was very pronounced. Never made a front page headline, but he said this. He said, the Muslims will take over the world in 20 years without ever firing a shot. And he's right. Because they are slowly taking over every European country. The, the, the main religion in Europe now is not Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism in Germany anymore or, or in Scotland Presbyterian. It's Muslim now. And they are fast and vastly taking over the whole world. That's their goal. And, of course, uh, many times I look at this thing and I think that the act of terrorism is just a side venue. They want to pretend that that, there's a radical side to Muslims and then there's a good side of Muslims. There isn't any good side to Muslims. Period. And of course, uh, many times we focus on the we focus on the, the terrorism because that's what frightens us, and thereby we focus on them, and then we breathe a sigh of relief when we see uh, the the common ordinary Muslims out there that that do not really pose or or do not uh, do not uh, are active are not active terrorists. Have you ever seen any terrorist or any Muslim on this planet? come out and stand against the terrorists that try to kill you? Not a one. At the end of the day, they all go to the same church. At the end of the day, they are brethren and they follow the same doctrine. But you see, Americans are too stupid to see that. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but on a threat level, one to ten in the Bible, God tells you, how much of a threat every religion is. I don't know if you know it or not. You can go through the Bible, and God will detail out for you the main religions of this world and will show you through the Bible. You see, when I say the Bible means everything to me and I use it for everything, I mean everything. Some of you just mean it for when you get in a jam. I mean everything every day. If you don't think that Bible shows you the threat level of every religion on this planet, and you can't go in the Bible and find God's statement or lack of statement on that particular religion. He deals with the Far East, the Near East, and the Middle East. He deals with the Muslims. He deals with the Catholics. He deals with the, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. He deals with the Church of Christ. He deals with the Charismatics. He deals with them all. And He shows you as you come through the Bible what threat level they are and how He really views them. Some of them He views very closely. Some of them he just laughs at. But it's all in there. And what Romans does between chapter 1 and chapter 2, it shows you that the Gentiles think one way and the and the uh, Shemites think another way. We don't have time to get into that today. We probably will as we move through these two chapters as we break them down and get into detail. Uh, chapter 3. What he does in chapter 3 is he shows you that... Uh, In the Gentiles case who followed their conscience after God and in the Jews case who followed the law that God gave them or the oracles of God, he says that doing neither one of those will solve the mess that they are in because of their sin. In chapter 4 and 5, he then switches gears and he shows them that everybody's in a mess, the Jew and the Gentiles. The Gentiles followed their conscience. The Jews followed the law. And in both cases, it could not solve the mess that they were in. But in chapter 4 and 5, he now begins to show you what will solve the mess, and that is getting God's righteousness. See how that book is building? It builds from the beginning of how, what it's, where it starts, with the mindset of the Gentiles, because that's where the church is. It shows you the Jew because God's not finished with the Jew. And then he shows you that the law and following your conscience will not solve the mess that that the Jews and the Gentiles are in. And now he's beginning to lay the hard foundation. He shows the Jew and the Gentile and you and I as the church that the only way you and I can solve the mess in our life today is to get God's righteousness. And that's what chapter 4 and 5 deals with. Chapter 4 and 5 shows you not only that God's righteousness is the answer to the mess, but it shows you how to get God's righteousness. And then we come to chapter uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now these three make up your your doctrinal section. Chapter 6 is the great death chapter. It deals with the fact that once Christ died on the cross, everything are changed, all bets are off. And now in chapter 6, 7, and 8, you deal with the Christian's relationship to everything that's out there, now the fact that you are dead and your life is hid in Christ. There lies the real doctrinal foundation for what we believe. This is what really changed about you and I the day we got saved. This is the real difference between the New Testament church and the Old Testament nation of Israel. When Christ died on that cross, and he resurrected from the dead, it was more than just, okay, now you can go to heaven. The whole picture got changed. And from that point on, your life and my life, we are dead once you get saved, and your life is hid with Christ. And because of the death of Christ and the cross, it changed your relationship and my relationship to everything in this world. And that's what chapter... uh, uh, Five, uh, 6, 7, and 8 deals with. Chapter 6 uh, focuses on the death of Christ and how it made you dead to the things in this world. Chapter 7 focuses on the, how that the New Testament Christian is affected by the law. And chapter 8 deals with the death of Christian in the redemption of your body and how it all changed. Those three chapters, on those three chapters, hang everything that the church is built on. And I'd see chapters, those three chapters, 6, 7, 8, are absolutely without a doubt the three most important chapters in all the Bible for the child of God as far as you getting a foundation for a New Testament Bible doctrine. Then we have chapter 9, 10, and 11. And those are your prophetic chapters. In chapter 9, he shows you why Israel didn't get in. You really begin to understand in chapter 9 what happened that that caused the church age to come about. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, you won't find any references to the church age. Somebody was asking me a question this week out of one of Larkin's books where uh, in Matthew, Mark, I forget exactly what New Testament book, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Larkin had pulled out a, a passage there and said that was the rapture. And they said, is that the rapture? And I said, no. I said, that's not the rapture. There is no direct reference to the rapture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Larkin is a good man, and his stuff revolutionized uh, the time that he lived in, but uh, I always tell you, you know, that when I tell you a guy to read, I can always tell you with that, you know what, you can trust about 50% or 80% or 90% or 99% of what he says, always realize that nobody's infallible, and that stands for me too. But... When it comes to Larkin, you can trust Larkin about 80% 80 of the time. Larkin's a good Bible teacher. He had a lot of truth that nobody else had. He's also a victim of the day day and age that he lived in, and we don't have time to get into that today, and that skewered some of his theology. But there is no reference to and I'm surprised that Larkin missed this, but he did. There is no reference directly to the rapture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just like there's no direct references to the rapture in the Old Testament. You know why? Because the the rapture is a mystery. It was not revealed until uh, Christ died on the cross and Paul came on the scene. Now, you will find some typology in the Old Testament that clearly shows you the church in progress, but the only way you can see that now is because the church has came into being and you have a point of reference to go back and see it. All those references that people think are to the rapture of the church in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are re- really references to the second coming of Christ. That's what that all is. But God is not finished with the Jew. And in chapter 9, he begins to show you that he's not finished with the Jew. And in chapter 9, he shows you why the Jew didn't get the kingdom of heaven. He shows you basically the beginning of understanding of why God chose to reveal the body mystery, the church. And in chapter 9, you find what Israel's problem was. And it's a great chapter. In chapter 10, he makes the parallel and he brings it into the Gentiles. And we always use Romans chapter 10 when we win somebody to Christ. It's a great salvation chapter, and it is. When I win somebody to Christ, I'll bring them through and I'll bring them through Romans chapter 10, verse 11, 12, and 13, you know, and I'll bring them through Romans 10, 3, and all their sin and come short of the glory of God, and, you know, and all that stuff. And it's great material, and it's absolutely true. When the Bible says, uh, When thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto the righteous, and the mouth confesseth the in of salvation. That is true. And when I'm going to win somebody to Christ, I want them to understand that. So Romans chapter 10 becomes the great chapter as the book of Romans itself becomes the great book by which you win people to Christ. Do you ever notice that people don't win people to Christ out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Even the charismatics don't. I mean, for somebody to put such high stock in those books, how come they don't use those books to win people to Christ? You know why? Because New Testament salvation is not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do they go to 1 Corinthians? They like to babble babble through there all the time. I'll tell you why. Because you couldn't find New Testament salvation in the book of 1 Corinthians with a laser beam and a flashlight. It's not there. They go to Romans. Why? Because Romans is the foundation for your salvation. And Romans chapter 9 shows you that God, why the Jews screwed it up. And, and, And Romans chapter 10 shows you how the Gentiles got in. So you're going to find out the base text for your salvation. And in Romans chapter 11, he shows you that even though Israel screwed up, chapter 9, even though you got in in chapter 10, God's not finished with a Jew, and he shows you that in chapter 11. Now, we're going to break those down in great detail when we do it, but you're getting an idea where this thing is going. This is why you've got to have this material here before we try to crack a page. And I dare to say that Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are three of the most important chapters in all the Bible to the Christian about how God views and what He's doing with the nation of Israel. Then you have chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. These are the practical chapters. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you that, uh, you know, when you really, uh, there was two aspects to your life. There was the intellectual aspect. That's what you know about the Bible. And I said that uh, everybody, have, uh, most people have an intellectual concept, but they don't have a conceptual concept. The book of Romans breaks down with the intellectual versus the conceptual. And when you get into chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way up to 16, you're now dealing with the doctrine, the, the, the intelligence of it, the intellectual part of it now applied in conceptual concepts. And you're going to find in these chapters, this is where you learn how to minister. First, you know, before he teaches anybody how to minister, you know what he does in chapter 12? He teaches you what you should be in Christ. I find that pretty amazing just by itself. Before he gets into the real meat of the practical, the conceptual. And now you understand what I'm saying about intellectual and conceptual. You can know the Bible and know all the things of the Bible. But if you can't translate it into your own family or your, or your people that you're working with or your wife or your husband <clears throat> or your children, then uh, it doesn't do you any good. There's got to be two aspects to it. I've met known people all my life that knew a lot about the Bible, but they could never get it down on a practical level where it ever impacted anybody's life. And that won't work. So in chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, he deals with the practical. And it's all built around relationship. You know why? Because the ministry is about relationships. I, you've heard me say it many, many times. When you want to build a church, and this is foreign today, but this is the way it works. This takes a lot more time. It's a lot harder, uh, but it's the only real way to do it. The way you build a church today, and I've said it many, many times, is either one person at a time, or one family at a time. And you know know what that really means? That means you build relationships. I'm not the kind of pastor that that just basically uh, wants to look out there and see a bunch of mindless faces that I don't know. That's not how you minister. That's not how you minister. You build a church by building relationships. And then through those relationships, God gives you the ability and the opportunity to build one man at a time, one woman at a time, one family at a time, one couple at a time, or one individual at a time. And that's what these chapters deal with. They deal with, now that you're saved, what is your relationship to this? And in chapter 12, he deals with your relationship with other people. In chapter 13, he he deals with your relationship to your government or any higher authority that's over you. About 15, 20 years ago, there was a bunch of Baptists who got the idea that uh, the Constitution, uh, they found that the Constitution was on their side, that they didn't have to pay their taxes, income tax, federal income taxes. And this guy went around the country going to Baptist churches to uh, uh, to get churches to and the people in those churches to quit paying income tax, federal income tax, based on the what he found in the Constitution that uh, and, uh, and, and what he and and I'm not saying what he found in the Constitution is it was bad, and I'm not saying paying federal income tax is good, but he don't pay it. You know where he's at today? He's making big rocks out of little rocks up here in Leavenworth. You know what his problem was? He was stupid. He probably had more education than all of us in this room combined. But education doesn't define intelligence. We got now, right now 150, probably 1,000 astronomers out there with all NASA and Houston and all these things around the world looking for life out there in the universe. And the big question is, is there life in the universe? Well, my big question is, is there intelligent life on planet Earth? I think we better start right there first before we worry about E.T. and his boys. They'll be along quick enough. <clears throat> in chapter 14, he deals with your relationship with other Christians. And then in chapter 15, he it's the great ministry chapter. And I gave you the seven things of ministry in there that when you minister to other people that you need to be. This is the great practical section. See how God balances the book of Romans out? He gives you historical, he gives you doctrinal, he gives you prophetical, then he gives you practical. That ought to be your life. You ought to know who the Antichrist is, you ought to know this, you ought to know that, you ought to know uh, the books, how they order out, you ought to know all the stuff I'm giving you, but you ought to just be one whale of a husband or a wife. You talked about the last Thursday night, the ability to love your wife as Christ loved the church and the wife to have the relationship with her husband that needs to have, that's where it ought to be, and it can't always just be about what the intellectual side, it ought to be the conceptual Your kids ought to look at you and think you're the greatest thing since ice cream. They ought to hang on every word you say about God. They ought to look and model their life after your life when it comes to God. You ought to be the role model in their life. See, it isn't all about just the the intellectual side of things. It's about the practical side of things, the conceptual side of things. That's what the book of Roman does. Not only does it give you all these things, it shows you the four balances that you and I need to have in your life. You need to have a historical balance, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's a cry and shame that God's people don't know where they came from. Absolute cry and shame. If I was asked, and I, you know, I always give you young Christians five years or less, you know, or and you may have been saved for thirty years, but if you haven't been here five years, I cut you all the slack in the world because anybody knows you can't learn the Bible anywhere but here. So I just give you a break on it. <laughs> but you don't, Some of you don't know who Irenaeus is. Some of you don't know who Polycarp is. You think it's a it's a goes along with polygrip. <laughs> you got to have no teeth to understand that particular joke. Johnny just gave yourself away up one side down the other. We don't know all those things of where we came from. If you had to explain what a Waldensian was or an Albigensian was or a Huguenot was, if you had to go back and, uh, you know, and, and lay all those things out, if you had to know who, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Storius was and Montanus was and all those groups, you know what, it, it, we have no history with us. It's incredible to me how that you in, in, and you and life and my life we go through life, pretending we're a child of God. I'm not saying you're not. Looking forward to going to heaven, thinking of all these things. And if I threw a piece of paper in front of you and said, "How do you know you're, where you're at now is where you're right and where you're going is right?" If you can't trace me the line where it came from. But that's God's people. We never seem to worry about that stuff until it comes to the world. I guarantee you no Christian out there would buy a car like he bought Christianity. You look under the hood, you look in the trunk, you kick the tires, you drive it around, you think about it, you pray about it, you go out here, you check the on the computer to see if it's ever been trash, wrecked, broken up. You want to know who the owner was, all those original miles, check the endometer, you want to go through that, you go to Carfax, where they go all those places. You know what? When it comes to God in the Bible, they say, give it to me and off you go. Some of you checked out the house that you bought more than you ever did, the salvation you got into. Now, that may not bother you, I just, and it doesn't bother me. I just look at that and scratch my head and say, what's wrong with you? Some of you, bless your heart, you took more time to find your wife than you did your salvation. Now, that probably doesn't happen much anymore because you get married in 15 minutes today, but uh, you know where I'm coming from. There has to be a historical side to it. Then you have to have a doctrinal side. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the foundational things of the word of God as far as it relates to you and me. And yet you need to know the practical, I mean the uh, prophetic side of things. You need to know about the tribulation. You need to know these things. They're important. You know, you got some preachers that they'll tell you up there, well, you don't want to worry about that deep doctrinal stuff because do will make you so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. Well, a guy says that's already no earthly good because he doesn't understand the concepts of how the Bible breaks down himself. You know why he tells you that? Because he don't know what they are and he don't want you embarrassing him by asking him. You need to know the prophetic things in the Bible. You need to know about the coming of Christ. You need to know about the tribulation. You need to know about the marriage supper of the Lamb. You need to know these things. You need to know that God is going to restore His people. But then you need to have the practical side of it. Romans shows you your balance. It's not only a book that lays out how it you know, what we're all to believe and sets the bedrock. It even shows you the balance by the natural breakdown of the book. And there's a practical section. You need to know how to deal with people. And he's already showed you in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that there's two kinds of people you're going to deal with. And you need to know how to deal with people. You need to know how you stand with your government today. You need to understand what's going on with your government today. You need to know how that affects you. You need to know what you do when the Bible says, render under Caesar what is the Caesar, and unto God what is the God. You need to know what your relationship is to other Christians. You need to know how to minister to each other. And that's the book, man. I mean, not only does it have everything that we need, but it shows you the balance. Now, the fourth thing, and I think this is very instructive, is Paul's style in writing the book. Now, remember I told you last week that these five things are or what people don't know about the book of Romans, and that's why the book of Romans appears so hard to them. We get these five things down, and I keep reminding you, and you make them in your notes, and uh, get it together. You're going to see how well it works for you, and how it all kind of plays together here. Now, the the fourth thing is Paul's style and writing of the book of Romans, and even his purpose in writing it. The difference between Romans and the rest of Paul's books is, is one simple concept. Romans is written in a legal style format. It's a legal document. Romans has been referred to over the centuries as the Constitution of Christianity. And rightly so. That's a great name for it. In fact, I've got that written above the book of Romans in my Bible. Have you ever tried to read a copy of the U.S. Constitution? It's hard to read. And the reason why it's hard to read is when they wrote it, they didn't write it like you and I talk. I mean, they didn't write it in layman's language like you and I would write something or talk about something. It's written in a a legal form. And legal scholars even today disagree about what the Constitution says, and most of that is based on how it is written. Romans is the same way. Romans is a legal binding document to the body of Christ of absolute doctrine and procedures for the church to operate by. It's our Constitution. As the U.S. Constitution was the bedrock for America put forth by our founding fathers, the book of Romans is our bedrock for the church put forth by its founding father, the Apostle Paul. Now, if you saw the movie, and I'm sure most of you have, if you didn't see it in the theaters, it's been on television the movie National Treasure. I only bring that up for one thing. It's because it shows you in there how how we protect the Constitution. And all that stuff in there, I mean, all of it about the treasure and in the, in the masons and all that stuff was goofy, but uh, uh, but, the, uh, but the, the real part of it was the fact that that's how they protect our Constitution. They case it and they go down in a the vault, they hide it away, you know, they bring it out every once in a while and spray it with you know WD40 or something to keep it preserved and it's just it's a and you know why they do that it's a national treasure i heard somebody say one time the day we lost the constitution if it was in a fire or it would be gone the day we'd lose the country because it's the only legal doctrine we have that says what this country is supposed to be well i got news for you the book of romans is the same thing to christianity it is christianity's national treasure and we have taken better care of the Constitution than we have the book of Romans. And that's why Christianity is in the mess of the sin. That's why we're in a mess we're in. We're just like a country that lost its Constitution. Nobody knows what we were made, nobody knows what we're all about anymore. And that's the problem in America. They're arguing about the Constitution, what it means. And that's the problem in Christianity. We're arguing about the Bible and what it means. And when the Founding Fathers put down the Constitution, they, I heard a guy this week, and it just, it drives me nuts. I mean, I, if I don't turn it off, I would just tear out every radio I have in my car. I don't listen to much radio at home. I catch it in the morning when I'm eating breakfast, but I just can't deal with it. And sometimes then I just got to shut it off and it drives me nuts. The absolute stupidity that's out there today about how this country was founded. And, uh, you know, and the, the whole idea how that God, now the whole idea is that, that God is not, that God was not ever intended to be in the Constitution. And uh, you know that, uh, and all the all the Christians now, uh, all the Christians now are accused of trying to make this country a theocracy. Well, I got news for you. Number one, uh, Christianity will never become a theocracy, and it doesn't need to because when the king comes back, he's going to make it a theocracy, and anybody going to worry about it? That's not your job or my job. He's going to do that. But it scares them to think that a country would have some kind of relationship with God. If it wouldn't cost them so much, they'd take "In God We Trust" off your money. You can't even put the Ten Commandments now in a public courthouse. And yet, if you would go back to the founding fathers and you would look at the founding fathers, you would find that the majority of them were born again, saved, blood-washed men and women that were brought to Christ under the preaching of two men who formed the foundation for the founding fathers, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Who knows that today? and even the ones of the Constitution of the Founding Fathers that were not Christians were so much in awe and respect of the Word of God and the preaching of those two men. Ben Franklin died and burned and went to hell. He was an unsaved man. He was a deist. He never really believed anything about God, but he had such a respect for God and the Word of God because of the power of God that was on this country. He said one time, he says, I don't go hear George Whitfield preach. Somebody says, why, don't you like him? He said, no, I like him. But He said, but every time I go, he said, the man moves me so much, I just give him every dime I've got. It isn't that I don't like him. I can't afford to go hear him. He said about George Fitfield one night, he said, you know what? That man's got the power of God in his life. He said, I went to his outdoor meeting, and he said, just to see what happened, he backed off. He said, I walked down the road at one mile, and at one mile's distance, I could still hear every word of his message clearly. Now that is an unsaved man who died and went to hell as far as we know that had no respect for God and the Bible in the sense that you and I do, but he he was under the power of preaching the Word of God in this country that even the unsaved people had to have respect to it even though they didn't believe it. Boy, we've come a long way, haven't we? And that's where we're at today. That's where we're at today. We have lost the concept of what this country was founded on. But at the same time, we have lost the concept by which Christianity was founded on. We're no better than the government officials. The pastors, the Bible teachers, the Bible scholars in this world are just like the congressmen and the senators and, the, and everybody in Washington. They both have got their own personal agenda. They want all of your money. They want to take everything they can in taxes, tithes on the other side, and they want to give you nothing back. And they know the only way they can do that is destroy the foundation from which this country was built, and the only way they can do it is destroy the foundation of which the church is built. That's why you need to know the book of Romans. And so Paul writes it. He writes it as a legal document. And in both cases, they're both national treasures. Then the fifth thing. And I think of all the keys to Romans to unlock itself, this last one is absolutely crucial. And it's the one that every writer I ever read on Romans, other than maybe two guys, missed. And I've read a few of them. And, And this one deals with who he wrote the book to. Who he wrote the book to. Now, what I'm about to give you here this morning is is there's so much depth to it. It's such an incredible concept that will change your perspective of everything. But at the same time, I know that we've got a mixed crowd here this morning and some of you are young Christians, so I'm going to try to make this as easy for you to understand uh, and try to take a very complicated, in-depth thing and lay it out in a basic way that you can grasp it. Now, this... All of these five things set the book of Romans apart from every other book in the Bible and certainly from Paul's other books. This last thing is the thing that sets it apart to such a degree that it, is, it, it, it absolutely demands our attention when you see it. And yet it's been missed because nobody pays attention to the basic, simple little words in the Bible anymore. I read through the Rome, book of Romans 75 times before I saw this. And I still can't stand up here and claim that I got it on my own. Somebody I was reading at the time made a reference to it that connected all the dots. But I read through it many, many times before I saw it myself. So I can't stand up here and expect you to grab it. But I can stand up here and do my best to break it down so you can get a grasp of it. And if you get what I'm about to show you in the proper perspective, you're going to get it. Now, the first thing I want you to know, and I'm going to say this again. I alluded to it earlier. When they come to the Bible, here's my position, so there's no misunderstanding about it. I believe the Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover, including the cover. I believe the Bible, every punctuation mark in the Bible is of God's design. I believe the order of the books were by God's design. I believe the chapter breakdowns are by God's design. I believe that everything in that book is there by God, because I don't believe God wrote a book that He just put it and gave it to the man and said, you figure the rest of it out. I believe that that book everything in that book, everything about that book. You know what I really believe? You want to know the bottom line when I believe? Now, if you're sitting here and you're unsaved this morning, here's what I believe. And it's for you saved save people too. Here's what I believe. And I'll tell you right now, I can't explain it. And if you put me on the spot some Thursday night and said, show me that book chapter verse, I ain't going to do it. But I don't care because I know it's true. Because I know, I know him a little better than some of you, and I know how he thinks. And I know how we think, because I read Romans chapter 1. And I know all our lives we are trying to get around God in everything that we do. Sitting here this morning in your best state, you're trying to figure out an angle against God. I guarantee you. Because I've been now preaching for 45 minutes and I thought of four angles to get around him and something. But here's the bottom line. When you see this and understand this concept, it'll change your whole perspective in life and your whole perspective of God. And when he wrote this thing and he put this thing down, he put it in a fashion that everything in there is by God's design. Everything. I mean, he put the order of the books. He put the order of the chapters. He put the punctuation in it. Nobody on planet Earth, or very few on planet Earth, follow that line of reasoning because to them, it's just unreasonable that you could have a book in paper Printed on a printing press with a leather cover that you could buy and pay money for that a man bound and put together could be the living words of God that God could have that kind of preservation power. Well, I believe that God could preserve somebody like me after I'm saved, that book to preserve it is a piece of cake. Now, that's where I'm at with it. And I believe that book from one end to the other. I I go to it for everything. I go to it for everything that I want to know. I go to it for everybody I deal with. When I talk to you about uh, all the things, I, I actually believe it's for everything in faith and practice. I may not live it all the time, I may not do what's right by it all the time, but there's a day in my life, even when I'm out of fellowship, that I don't know it and still know the book's right. Now, that's where I'm at. Now, Paul writes the seven churches. We know that. John writes the seven churches. Find him in the book of Revelation. Those seven churches that John writes lines up to the seven churches that Paul writes. We don't have time to get into all that today, but they do. I will tell you this. Romans lines up to Sardis. Sardis means red ones. And that's a study in itself. Now you're going to find the thing that sets this book apart is that God is doing something in Romans on a magnitude scale. Not only is he giving you all the doctrine not only is he laying out everything as far as the balance is concerned but he's giving you the perception and the understanding with what I'm about to show you here of you being a you understanding the time that you were living in that you know exactly what you were up against and what's going on now paul writes to seven churches romans is the first book that he writes and then he writes to corinthians galatians ephesians philippians colossians and thessalonians when you go to the beginning of those books, in all of Paul's other books, he starts out with a greeting to the church. He does it in all the books. And, and he greets either the church or the saints that are at that particular church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, Paul unto the church of God at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 1, 1, he says, Paul unto the church of God at Corinth. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Paul unto the church at Galatia. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul unto the saints at Ephesus. In Philippians, he says, Paul to all the saints at Philippi. In Colossians, he says, Paul to the saints at Colossia." In 1 Thessalonians, he says, 1 1, he says, to the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians, 1 1, he says, to the church at Thessalonica. And every one of those greetings, it's either to the church or the Christians that are at that church. Every one of them. And, of course, the rest of the books he writes, he writes to individuals. And they're a great study in themselves, but we certainly don't have time to tackle that one as well. Now, come over to Romans and open your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Romans is distinctly different, and this is why, and I say it again. I've said it 100,000 times, and I'll say it 100,000 times more if I get the opportunity for Christ comes back. You have to pay attention to every word in the Bible. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to get you to think that every word wasn't important. When you take that position, you're going to miss something in the Bible, and in the case of Romans, you're going to miss something big. Now look at Romans chapter 1, verse 7 to all that be in Rome called to be saints. He ain't talking about somebody at Rome. He doesn't say the church at Rome. He doesn't say the saints at Rome. He says everybody that's in Rome. Now here's a place where God's Holy Spirit changes it up for you. Every other church he wrote, he said at. This one he says, and he addresses either the church or the Christians in that church. Here he addresses neither, and he says, all that be in Rome. He chains it up. Your job and my job is to find things like that when you read your Bible. Your job and my job is to get into that book and believe that every word is there by God and every word is important, and you take a little word just as different as in and at, and it changes the whole concept. Who would ever think of that? without ever going to the Greek, without ever getting to Hebrew, without ever getting out Dr. A.T. Robinson's Greek grammar book, we figured it out just by understanding there's a difference between at and in. That's God. That's the Bible. Now, the thing that sets the book of Romans apart from all Paul's works is the fact that it's addressed to somebody, but somebody not at a church, but somebody that is in Rome. Now, I understand that I understand perfectly standing here that there were people, Christians in Rome and churches in Rome at the time of his writing. I know that. What I'm telling you is the Holy Spirit of God stepped in here and said, change that, Paul. I know there's Christians there, and I know there's churches there, but this book is different than the rest, so it's not going to be aimed somebody at the church. It's going to be aimed at somebody not in a church but in Rome. Now, here we go. If you've got to go to the bathroom, I'll take five minutes. Now's the time to go. All right. Here we go. This book is aimed at everybody in 2008 A.D. Where all of his other books are past truth that you have to make a present application to This book is different. And this is what sets it apart. Romans is aimed at every Christian from 58 A.D. when it was written, right up through every age, every period, every century, right up to 2008, right up to the rapture of the church, and right up to the end of the Bible. Let me explain that. It's aimed at everybody that lives in Rome. Let me explain that. Let me explain that. Now, I don't want you to turn back to it because I don't want to... I want you just to listen because I think some of you younger Christians will grab more of this by listening to it than trying to follow me through it. You want to go through it on Thursday night or come over to my house and help me break it down, I'll do that. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Don't turn there. Just listen to me. Oh, you can write some things down. but Don't let me catch you, don't let me catch you sketching ugly faces of me on your paper. I walked over to somebody a couple weeks ago and looked at their notes and they were making funny pictures of me on their paper. Not a good career move. (laughs) Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are the great chapters that deal with Daniel's image. Daniel's image, ladies and gentlemen, was Daniel projecting what the Gentile nations, who they were going to be down through the coming centuries. Daniel writes in the captivity of 606 B.C. He's 400 years before Christ. And on that time and that year, he writes and lists out the Gentile nations by which the devil is going to run the world from right there all the way up to the second coming of Christ. Now, you understand that that includes the time period that you and I are living in. Mm -hmm. Daniel chapter 2 shows you, God's Holy Spirit shows you and is recorded for you through an image, an image with a head, shoulders, thighs, legs, and feet. The head is gold. That head of gold is the nation of Babylon. The silver is Persia. The brass is Greece with Alexander the Great, right down through history. In 100 B.C., Alexander the Great, Greece gets defeated by Rome, thereabouts. And from that point on, the iron legs of Daniel is under the pagan Roman Empire. And uh, it brings you right up to the first coming of Christ. After the first coming of Christ, about the 3rd century, we find the next, uh, these legs of Rome come right up through here, and you'll notice that there's two legs of Rome, two legs of iron, only one head, only one shoulders, only one uh, brass belly, but the legs there's two because there's two sides to this Roman thing. One is a secular pagan Roman, the other one is a religious Roman, the Holy Roman Empire. And you're going to find that these two legs, the iron legs of Daniel's image, one stands for the political system of Rome, which we know as through the Herods. The other one stands as a religious system, which we know as the Roman Catholic Church today, that comes out of the political system around 325 A.D. And those two stay in power right up to the feet of iron and clay, which we know is defined for us as the Antichrist kingdom. So we now know from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel makes his great prophecy, when Daniel makes his great prophecy, we now know that, that from time that Daniel's in the captivity, he foretells how the devil is going to run the world through the Gentile nations. It starts with Babylon. Then it goes to Persia. Then it goes to Greece. Then it goes to Rome. Rome stays in power and changes her political to a religious system in 325 AD and is exactly the the nation that's in power today. You know that the Vatican in Rome is a church, but it's also a nation. Do you know that? Do you know that we send from our government... Diplomats all around the world. We have a diplomat to Kenya, a diplomat to France, a diplomat to and those are political diplomats that go to other countries. You know that every country in this world sends a diplomat to Rome, not the country of Rome, but the Vatican in Rome? It's an it's a country unto itself. That's why no Catholic priest in this in this country pays taxes. He didn't pay any taxes. You know why he's paying taxes? He's not a citizen of this country. You say, well, my priest was born down there in Chicago. I don't care where he was born. His citizenship is not here as far as our government concerns. He's from that country, and no matter if he's born here or not, he's still a citizen of that country. That's why he doesn't pay any taxes. The process is a long, lengthy study. You know, I love to hear the conspiracy theories. I mean, I just, I, I just love to hear them. I mean, they're on all the time. And, uh, you know, you, you, you get on the Internet, I, which I don't do, but you get on the Internet, they're just endless. I mean, you got the, I, I grew up with the conspiracy that the world was run by the Illuminati. And then somebody said it was run by the Jewish bankers, the Vildebergs. Then somebody else said that it was run by the, you know, that the world is run by the Masons. And then somebody else said, well, it's run by the Rothschild. You get all this stuff about, you know, and the National Treasury didn't help it any. You get the idea that the Masons is some kind of satanic organization, you know, and behind this closed doors they do human sacrifices and they worship Satan and all those things. Let me tell you something. Obviously, the Masons are not a Christian organization, but it isn't any more pagan and any more godless and any more satanic than the Boy Scouts. That's just where it's at. Is it a Christian organization? No. Will they put they do this and do that, so what? Find me in the Bible where God's program is the Masons. The God's Bible, is, and it ain't the Boy Scouts either, and it isn't UNICEF, and it isn't all the organizations out there. There's one thing that's God's program. It is the local New Testament church based on the Book of Romans. That's what it is. But all they take a bad rap. They do. Everybody takes a bad rap. And we worry about the secret Jewish bankers. And we worry about, now there's a thing out that George Bush flew the planes into 9-1-11 and 11 and and blew the towers. You can get video out there that actually shows that the Muslims didn't do it, the conspirators didn't do it, our own government did it. Oh, it's just endless, absolutely endless. I'm expecting any moment Elvis to walk in the back door and come down and sit in the front. I mean, there was a guy in the newspaper uh, about four years ago that said, guaranteed, that he met Elvis. Elvis is still alive. And he, Elvis told him the story where he's at. And, and uh, you know, he wrote a book. And he probably made millions and millions of dollars after. And if you dig Elvis up down there, he'd be rotten in the grave and his corpse is still there. It doesn't take much for us. We love a good mystery. We like to think, ooh, there's something sinister out there. Well, there is. But it ain't what I just named Ain't one of I just named. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 calls Babylon mystery religion the mother of harlots. He says that title for a reason. Rome comes into power about 100 B.C. and stays in power right up to the rapture of the church. And I'll tell you, people don't understand it. There's a book you ought to buy that I think is one of the greatest books that's come out in the last 20 years. It's called The Death of Biblical Doctrine. The Death of Bible Doctrine. And it shows exactly what I, I was preaching it 10 years before this book ever came out. But it's absolutely what I'm trying to tell you that, and it's a great book to read. It puts it all in perspective showing how it's happened. But it happens because that there's an agenda out there and you and I are living in Rome. That's why he didn't say the church at Rome because you and I are still under the Roman Empire. She is behind everything that goes on today, everything that takes place. Have you ever read a book called 50 Years in the Church of Rome? Of course you haven't. Have you ever read the book Vietnam, Why Do We Go? Have you ever read the book? Tell me what the Oxford Movement was. Have you ever read the book The Secret History of the Oxford Movement? Probably not. you ever read about the great gunpowder plot in 1600? How about Trail of the Assassins? you ever read that one? I'm going to tell you something. There is a conspiracy out there. But all the other conspiracies are are just to get your mind off the big conspiracy that's going on that has one goal, and that is to destroy everything this country stands for when it comes to the Word of God. I grew up, as some of you older folks did, in the Cold War. You probably remember where you were. I remember where I was. You probably remember where you were the night that we almost went to war with Cuba over the missile crisis. Where were you at? In the Navy. Where were you at? You know where that's okay. You know where I was? Sorry, Pat. He was in the Navy. I was in the sixth grade. But I'll never forget. We were having an open house that night where the teacher talks to the parents about how good you're doing in school. I was praying for war. A nuclear attack on Canton, Ohio would have solved all my problems that night. (laughs) I was hoping for what? But I'll never forget. I'll never forget my dad. We were getting ready to go to school. And I was sweating because my teacher, she didn't like me. And my dad was there getting ready to go. And I knew that the teacher, she had one way of getting back to me. That's when he had parents night. And I knew as well as I was there, I was going to get whacked that night when I got home. But I was praying for war. And my dad was getting ready there. And my mom was getting ready. And we were getting ready to go to school. And I heard my dad say to my mother, well, just watch the TV. He said, well, we may be at war. We may be at war sometime tonight or tomorrow, and I'm in the back room going, yes! But we didn't. But that was the Cold War. And everybody was afraid that there was going to be a war with Russia. That's where we had the Strategic Air Command, the missiles, the sil- all around the farmlands in Missouri. They don't have them anymore, but there were missile silos, inter-ballistic continental missiles that we were going to aim at Russia. They had theirs aimed at us. And everybody was, everybody, was, everybody was panicked because there was a Cold War. And, and everybody's finger was on the button. And we came so close so many times to having a war with Russia. And it was, the, it was the whole concept, and it was all a smokery. I never remember reading the Saturday Evening Post about 1957. And I'll never forget. It talked about how to survive a nuclear attack. And they had those terrible pictures that took place in, in White Sands, Mexico, when they did the first one, how that they had dummies in the houses, you know, and it blew the houses away, and, and people's flesh was burning off of them. and it was just I mean, the idea of somebody nuking you, was we just had got past Hiroshima, where the shadows were of people that were generated were burned into the walls and on the ground, and people walking around with flesh hanging off of them. it was terrible. Every American was afraid, and it was as a tactic to, to, to keep us in line. And, and I remember reading that Saturday evening post, and it says, How to Survive. And it said, If you make $100,000 a year, you can build a bomb shelter that you can 100% survive a nuclear attack. Next page. If you make, if you make $60,000 a year, you can build a bomb shelter that is, is 50% guaranteed. And then if you make, you know, 50000 or $45,000 a year, you can make one that you, you have a great chance of surviving. And anything under, if, you know, $10,000, $20,000 a year, which is our category, your advice was go to the southwest corner of your basement. Boy, I got to know the southwest corner of my basement. I was just a little guy. I was afraid that we were going to be nuked. And when I looked at the southwest corner of my basement, I said, oh, we're in trouble, boys. This ain't going to help me. But you know what? All that Cold War stuff was a smokescreen to get your eyes off the real threat. It's always been there. Paul understood that. Paul understood that the breakdown of the church today and the breakdown of the Bible today was going to start with somebody taking your Bible away from you. You know what they replaced it with? They replaced it with a Bible from Rome. Then they start chipping away at the doctrines. Now you find Baptists who once stood for the doctrines of premillennialism don't believe it anymore. You find Baptist churches that once believed the rapture was going to take place before the judgment comes, they don't believe it anymore. You had Baptists who once thought that Calvin was a heretic, now they're adopting Calvinism under a new form called Reformation Theology. And you 're finding all of the things that we once stood for are gone. why? Because there's a conspiracy at work behind the scenes to destroy everything you believe and destroy God out of this country and it started by taking out the Reformation Bible to King James from the Bible believers and putting Rome Bible in. and if you got any other Bible than the King James Bible this morning, you got Rome Bible it's just that simple now A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the book of Job. And I told you that Job chapter 12 and 13 were the greatest two chapters in the New Testament on the person of Satan. I told you that Job chapter 41 and 42, and this is what the question was about, uh, was the greatest two chapters in the Old Testament about about Satan in the Old Testament. And Job chapter 41, verse 13, remember we talked about that night? I read the verse here in verse 13 that says, talking about the devil, who can discover the face of his garment. Now that's a great key. And I want you to go home with a full cup today, so let me just show you how this thing works. It's a great key. The key to identifying who the devil is. The key to I'll say it again. The key to identifying who the devil is and seeing his face is in the clothes that he wears. Now there's a great study in the Bible and We'll probably never get into it because it's so depth. You know, if I ever taught it to you on the one high, you'll all lose your mind. It's absolutely, I can't even grasp it sometimes myself. But it's the, it's the study of the devil's clothes and God's clothes. The devil is identified through the face of his garments. That means he's ID'd and identified by the clothes that he wears. Shows God, by the way. You know what you got in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? You've got seven seven changes of clothes that the devil changes his clothes seven times. Every time he changes his clothes, he changes the face of his garment. Seven times. You know God does the same seven changes? Somebody said one time, all the life's a stage. Well, if the Bible from Genesis Revelation is a gigantic play, then it's got seven acts to it. It's a seven-act play. When the Bible says who can discover the face of his garment, you'll find that the garment is the way that you identify who he is, and you'll find that down through the history of the Bible, he changes garments seven times, and so does God. Job chapter 41, verse 12, the verse preceding that says, God says about the devil, I will not conceal his parts, his power, or his comely proportion.'" His parts are the men that he uses. His power are the nations that he uses. And his comely proportion is the religion that he uses. And you find those out and you identify his face by the clothes that he wears. You know that's true in a practical sense. That's a great principle in dealing with people. You ever notice how a worldly person dresses versus a godly person? You ever notice that? Now, I'm not saying you, you got to dress up when you come to church. You all look fine today. You want to wear blue jeans? That's fine. You want to wear, well, I don't have a problem with that. But you can actually tell when you get out in the world that the, the, the specimen isn't on his way home from church. I mean, it, you can tell by the clothes of people. Why? Because we're clothes. Who, who said it? Clothes reflect the man. You see somebody coming in a $500 three-piece suit and down there, you know, and he gets out of a Mercedes-Benz who's got a chauffeur and drives him around, you know that that's not somebody that works for the parks department. He's somebody, or at least he thinks he is. You take some old guy coming out of the mall out there someplace, and you know, he's got his hat pulled down to the side his pants down to his rear end, and he's walking around. Sorry! I don't know what to tell you. My Bible says, the face is in the garment. You think that just means the devil? I guarantee you you can look at this world and I' tell you I'll tell you, you can look at this world and you can see the way they dress. I've seen some of, some of, some of, some of God's women wear a dress so tight a mosquito would break, break a wing trying to get through it. The face, the identity is in the garment. Bible says that and you want to ID the devil find what kind of clothes he's wearing you want to find God find out what kind of clothes he's wearing when great study and the devil changes his garments seven times God changes his garments seven times and oh glory the last time he changes garments is a time now, in the history of man, the Bible makes seven garment changes down through history, Genesis to Revelation. Who can discover the face of his garment? Nobody without a King James Bible. That's the keys. Paul understood this. Paul recognized that we weren't at Rome, we were in Rome. And when he wants you to understand that in the New Testament church today, doing the ministry that we do, there's a higher power over you that you have to contend with. You're not at Rome, you're in Rome. Paul understood Daniel chapter 2. He understood Daniel chapter 7. He also understood the book of Revelation that wasn't even written yet. He knew Revelation 7 and 18. He knew Revelation 12 and 13. And it wasn't even written yet. But he got the revelation from God on Mount Sinai. God gave him the whole thing. So when he wrote the book of Romans, he said, this book's going to be different because this book is going to be written to somebody who's ministering to Jews and Gentiles who need to understand the whole concept that are not at Rome, you're living In Rome, Rome is over you today. You say, I'm an American. I don't care. You ever notice why there's no American Catholics? You ever notice why there's no Mexican Catholics? Whatever country you go to, they're all Roman Catholics. There's No American Catholics. There's no Australian Catholics. You don't go down to Australia and say, where do you go to church? Well, I'm an Australian Catholic. Where do you go to church? Well, I'm a French, French Catholic. Well, I'm in England. Where do you go to church? Well, I'm an English Catholic. Where do you, I'm going to Milwaukee. Where do you go to church? Well, I'm an American Catholic. No, it's Roman Catholic. Don't you know the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Don't you know the phrase, see Rome and die? <laughs> a lot of Christians did. Paul did. See, Paul knows all of this. And when he writes the book of Romans to the New Testament church, the body of Christ, he doesn't miss a trick. Every issue, every doctrine, every heresy, every political situation, every religion, every ministry, your job, your ministry, your government, your family, all found here in Romans, the constitution of Christianity. He wants you and me to know that Rome is in power and been the single issue behind the scenes that has destroyed everything in the body of Christ and is setting everything up for the man of sin. And I'm telling you, Paul knew that. Now, when you understand the book of Romans, you've got to understand that in that light. You know, you heard me say this and I started talking about it right after, right before the new year and I talked about how that, you know, from where we've come from and where we're at, I really believe and I really believe that this year in our church is going to be the year of the Bible. I believe that God is going to do some tremendous things. You've heard me say many, many times when I when I preach to you and I say something rough and say something hard that I always preface it by saying, you know, if you've been here Say five years or less, or you've been in this church, you know, five years or less, you know, uh, you, uh, you don't even listen to what I'm saying. And yet many of you have come back to me and said, well, I listen to what you say even though I haven't been here. I appreciate that, but you know what I'm saying. I really can't hold you accountable if you haven't been under my preaching and teaching for at least four years. I really can't. It takes you that long just to figure it all out. And that's where long-suffering and patience come in, and, and I take you as a young Christian and work you toward that one-on-one, however we do it, but I never hold you, young Christians, to the same accountability somebody's been under my ministry uh, four or five years, four years anyhow. Never do. I understand there's a process, and I'm never, I'm never impatient with that process. I don't expect of more out of you than you can give. And you say, well, I've been saved 20 years, and I shouldn't know more. Well, maybe that's true, but you know what? You haven't been here for 20 years, and I ain't responsible for where you've been. I know this. You give me your life, you give me your time, you give me your full undivided attention, and give me five years of your life, and I'll have you stand in front of anybody with that book in five years if you do what you need to do. So I can't really hold you accountable, and I really can't. When I talk about the year of the Bible in that sense, I'm talking about you guys getting a real foot, get your feet on the ground, and really getting somewhere. And I've already seen it. I've already seen from this beginning of this year, some of you who were kind of just checking things out have got your focus set now, and you're saying, you know what? I'm going to get this. That's what I'm talking about. It may take you two or three years to get it all down, four years to get it all down. That's okay. I'm not talking to you. But, but let me just say this, so you understand where I'm coming from. Boys and girls, the party's over because come this June, we'll have been a church five years. Party's over. Party's over. I give you a five-year grace period. Some of you have been around the church for at least four years. You know who you are. I don't even remember who you are, but you know who you are. I'm not saying this to any individual one way or the other. I'm just saying in a collective sense, party's over. Come June, we have been here five years, and most of the leadership have been here at least four or five years now, and it's time to step up to that higher level. There's two things this church has to protect, only two. It's not a complicated issue, only two. One of them is the doctrine by which this church stands on, that we don't corrupt ourselves like everybody else out there. And the second thing is most of you don't know anything about, because I took all this time talking about the doctrine, and that's the integrity of our ministry. You know, when you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the priests, they did their work just like you and I did our work. Within the work they did, you find out there were the things that they did and then there were some holy things of God. Did you ever see that? Yes. In the ministry, there's some holy things of God. In the Church of Jesus Christ, there's some holy things. Yeah, we go play volleyball. We go play softball. We do all kinds of things. We have fun. We get together for this, get together for that. We laugh. We have a ball. But you know what? The bottom line is there's some holy things that have to do that God looks at that God looks at and they never change for him. I think one of the dangers of, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're not a legalistic church and we're never going to be a legalistic church because legalism, as far as I'm concerned, is just, it, it's, it's fleshly, it's worldly, and nothing to, about God with it. You know what, you ladies, you know, some of you ladies, if you were in some churches today and you got blue jeans on or slacks on, you'd be in you'd be an anathema. And I don't know what anathema means, but it doesn't sound very good when I hear it you don't have a dress on, you in anybody. And, you know, uh, they, they, and we don't go there. We try, to, we try to balance the middle. Now, I understand, you know, that you know, and there's some churches that, you know, that if you don't have a suit and tie on and you're a Christian, you know what, you're looked down like there's something wrong spiritual with you. And, of course, that's all goofy stuff. That's all goofy stuff. But at the same time, there's a real danger and not, not being a legalistic church because if you don't keep the balance then it comes to the point where you're not legalistic but you come to the point where anything goes when the whistle blows. and We don't want to be there either. There's some holy things about church, about preaching, about teaching the Bible that have to be represented in things. And you have to learn that a church service is not a football game. It's, it's not a band concert. There's an absolute... I mean, back in the book of Nehemiah, when they, and this is what's missing in the church today. Back in Nehemiah, when you go back there and you study in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5, the Bible says when Nehemiah got before the people and opened up the book and began to read, you know what they did? They all stood up. You know why? Because they knew there were some holy things about reading the Word of God. They weren't looking around, winding their watch. They weren't, they weren't. Consumed with all the things that we do in our churches today, they realize that when the when the when the when the church service starts, brother, that it's God's time and everything else gets put on hold. They realize that there had to be a respect to the word of God. There had to be an absolute respect to the things of God. Because there's some holy things that God looks at and He doesn't mind if we have a good time. He doesn't really care what you wear. You come to church, you come the best you can. Nobody's gonna throw you out. Nobody's going to measure your hair to see if it touches your ear or down the back of your collar. When I was growing up in a church back in Ohio, you know what? They measured your hair, and if it touched the ear of your church, you couldn't play sports. Ludicrous. Ludicrous. But you know what? I'm telling you something. There's some holy things. Now, you've had an easy ride the last five years. You had good Bible. You've had total access to me you got more Bible in the last 10 uh, uh, in the last uh, 12 months than any 10 churches got in this city probably in the last 10 years and that's not a reflection on me that's just the truth but you know what you tend to get spoiled I almost did this but I'm not going to do it but I almost did I almost did because I want to give this is going to be the year of the Bible and I wanted to give you a good object lesson I almost did this but I've got so much to get done we've got so much we can't afford can't afford this but I wanted to do it what I wanted to do is either next week or the week after tell you we ain't having church. Just drop the whole thing and say, and then send you out to some other place to see what you get. Let you send it to some bozo that doesn't know his Bible from his belly. Let you go someplace to a Bible study where somebody didn't even understand to hold the Bible right side up. You know why? Because you get spoiled here. And when you get spoiled here, you become like a little child and you get, you get finicky over little things. And the holy things of God go out the window. See? Well, party's over. Party's over. Party's over. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, well, you know, the church is really ready, exploding. And I believe it is. We had 176 people last week. Six unsafe people. And I, and I really believe it is. I really believe that if God gives us this building, it's going it's to explode. And somebody said to me, well, what is your plan? You know, you said you do not want to get the church past 400. What is your plan when you get to that point? I'll show you my plan. I'll show you my plan. I guarantee you we'll cut this crowd in half by next year. I guarantee you we will. You know our little books of the Bible we go through every month that some of you have left a long time ago, found a better deal? Well, listen. I got people who want to get into me to learn the Bible. And anybody can get in. Anybody can get in. But I'm going to tell you something. I am tired, and I'm not going to do it this year, chasing everybody around, getting five or six dates. Somebody says, well, we got a date here, and I book it in my calendar, book everything else around it, and then somebody comes back and says, oh, two people aren't ready yet. And then we move on, and I have to change my whole schedule for you. For you. Party's over. Party's over. Not for you, young Christians. I'll help you plot along. I'll get you there. But you know what next month we're going to do it this month next month i'm going to pick three times in a month that we're going to meet and we're going to go through it and uh you get your group your crowd you want to get there fine you got somebody ready leave them in the dust i don't know what to tell you if to whom much is given much is required you're going to have to step up to the plate i know some of you got some issues i'm not talking about that I'm talking about the men and women in this church that have been around here four or five years that you know what's going on. And you got your head so far up your butt you can't even see what's going on. Now if that offended you, that's why we picked this place because it's got two doors you can get out either one of them. Somebody said, I don't like the way you talk. Well, you stick around, pal. You're going to like it less forty years out. We cannot continue to play the same games. Somebody in this church has to step up to the plate. Somebody has to stand up and say, hey, this is the way it's going to be, and it has to start with the individual. You have to decide. You have to decide if the Bible is going to be for you what God intended for it to be. I can't do that. You're going to have to prioritize your life. You're going to have to get your little kitty car things out of the way, and you're going to have to decide what you're going to do. And if you're going to work with people in this church, then you're going to have to apply the principles to your own life first. It's just that simple. Party's over. Grace period is past. We're going to be five years of church this year, and some of you are coming out from under the rod of protection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. You're going to have to live what you preach. And if you're going to work with people, you can't say to them when they're in their struggles, well, you got to do this. But when you're faced with the same issues, you don't have to do it yourself. Ain't going to cut it anymore. If you're in ministry in this church, you're going to be held accountable to a higher standard in your marriage, in your family, how you deal with issues in life. I'm going to look for the seven character qualities of God that we laid out as the same seven character qualities of ministry, and I'm going to look for them in your life. No more free rides, folks. I'll show you how we don't get 400. I'll show you real good. Because going to 400 and 500 with a bunch of both, that's why when we get to the church, and I may change my mind down the line someplace, we ain't putting a sign up. We're not. We didn't put one up here up for two or three years. You know why? Because we kept out the riffraff. Now, I say that, and yet we got two or three people that saw the sign It turned out to be good. But the majority of them were just mad at somebody else looking for somebody else to be mad at. No, 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 no. Well, I'm not going to spend $6,000 for a sign. I'd rather have 150 signs right here. You go build it. You go bring them in. Let's not rely on somebody's chance of the Holy Spirit of God grasping their attention as they drive by a big old glorious sign that says, Come in here. Come and see. You be the sign. You build it. Let your life, wherever you work, whatever you do, let it be the catalyst by which men see it and say, I want what they've got. That's how you build it. And that's how we're going to build it. Party's over. Party's over for some of you. And the bottom line is this, folks. If we're going to be a church, then we are going to be a church. And some of you are going to have to look at the book of Romans. That's why the book of Romans and starting it right now is so key because it fits into right where we're at. You're going to have to get a balance in your life. You're going to have to make sure that your life is different from the world. You're not going to be able to have one foot in the world and one foot here. It ain't going to work. Now, obviously, you can come all you want and get all you can get from here, and I have no problem with that at all. I'm not making this message to anybody in general. I'm talking to you as a church. Because if you think, after all God's given us and all He's given you, I would, I would, with everything I have in me, would like to send you to another church next week. I'd just like to let you go listen to some deadbeat, listen to some bozo, listen to somebody that dis- and looks at you because you're not dressed right or gets up there and gives you the goofiest sermon you ever had in your life so you appreciate what God gives you here. Because some of you, we get spoiled. We get spoiled. And when you get spoiled, all you see is your little world. All you see is what you got and what affects you. The whole world dies and goes to hell around you and all you can see is what you want to see through your little blinders. Well, that can't be. Not if we're going to go. Hey, we need to decide. I've told you this all along. We either decide we're going to be a church or let's just all go do something else. Let's become a big bowling team. Let's all go get race cars and become race car drivers. Got a guy that can build the engines for us. Let's all go be a big ski club. Let's get boats and all go to the lake and be a water ski marvel. Boy, it would be for some of us. I love you. If you don't know that by now, you don't know nothing. But I'm telling you, we are going to give an account someday for what God has given us here. We are. We are. We are. And that day's coming. And I know the world, I know the world sucks in. I know that it plays on our weaknesses. I know that. I understand all of that. I know that it it draws us in, but I'm telling you something. We gotta have our head up. We gotta know what we're doing. We gotta, for those of you that want to build a church, and I don't even know who I'm talking to today, but if you want to build a church and this is your church and you're gonna make this thing fly, then everybody has to step up to the next level. It's all it is to it. We've got to define that when we get with God, it's special time. When we get with God, it is a time that is unlike any other time in our life. We have met together as a body. And that time is God's time. And we act like it's God's time. And I'll tell you, that's where we've got to go. Now, Romans is the key book for where we're at right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed.